So, family business, just right up front. Uh, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, um, I took a back seat to preaching um, at the request of our elders and deacons to focus on our restructure uh, that we were going through. Um, in the midst of that, we kind of caught a grenade in the middle of that, if some of you know, and have been kind of dealing with that. But a lot of people didn't know uh, what has been going on. And for us and our family, it just felt like we've kind of been through the meat grinder, kind of took some body shots. And I, I would just want to say uh, I'm really thankful, um, incredibly grateful um, for those that have prayed for us, um, encouraged us, and lifted up our weary arms during the season. Um, some of you may never know uh, what that means to myself and my family. Um, there's still hurt and things to unpack. And, uh, but here's the thing. Uh, Isaac asked me on Wednesday night uh, what would be my response on Sunday. And I gave him a really strong, I don't know. I don't know what I would say up here. And here's the problem for me. I believe, very fiercely convicted, uh, that the pulpit and church and Sundays in general are meant exclusively for Jesus. I mean, that's just it. I, I, don't, I don't really want to say anything. I don't want to dive into anything. Um, I, that's just not where I'm at. But on the other side of that, I don't want you sitting there. If some of you are wondering how we're doing or what's our response or what we're thinking about. And, I, and if, if I don't say something, if you're going to be just sitting here with the back of your mind like this big lump of tumor in your brain that you can't hear anything else that we're going to say in the text, uh, then I do am willing to share uh, what I'm thinking about, but it may not be what you want to hear, and it may not be what you're expected. Uh, but here's the thing. Here's what I'm thinking about, and it's really uh, feminism, okay? And the reason why, I don't know why the Lord put feminism on my heart in response to everything that we've been going through, is that there's this woman named Mary Poplin, and she's a PhD. Um, she's um, a professor of education at Claremont Graduate University. She uh, was in her life a radical feminist. And I had a radical feminist when I was in um, college teach some of my courses. She was a radical Marxist. And, um, and she had problem. She had a problem because she had been through every feminist course study that she can, every Marxist study, and she stumbled onto this woman that didn't fit within her paradigm called Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was a famous um, Catholic missionary who worked with the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. She would um, go to people without shoes, without feet, without clothing, without food, and basically leveraged her life so that the poor of Calcutta could be served. She's an absolutely fascinating woman. And here's the thing. This woman had been studying women her whole life and had never had anybody bring up maybe what's considered the greatest woman of the 20th century, Mother Teresa. And she's like, why is that the case? And so she takes a sabbatical from university and she goes to Calcutta to work with Mother T. All right? She goes there around 1996 and she had this problem. Why did Mother Teresa in particular call the work that she did religious work and not social work, right? Why is it religious work and not social work? And what motivates Mother Teresa? What, what, who, what kind of woman is this? Because you can go to all kinds of university and nobody knows what to do with her, all right? And so she went there and served with her. And while she's there, she just tells absolutely fascinating stories about things that Mother Teresa did that were just mind-blowing, I've actually sent the same thing to Matt before. And what's, what's, what's interesting about it, she told a story there that has stuck with me. While she was there, um, the famous atheist Christopher Hitchin just wrote a hit piece about Mother Teresa. Wrote a book, making money, trying to do this thing against Mother Teresa. It was just super harsh, really brutal. And all the little nuns there bought one copy of the atheist Christopher Hitchin's book against Mother Teresa. They all read it and passed it around. And Mother Teresa got it. And so Mary was just super fascinated by this and said, you know, Mother, it's like, he wrote this book about you. It's all over the world. And, you know, he's saying all these things about you. It's like, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what is your response to him? And Mother Teresa, without blinking an eye, and as though it was just 
Except she said, oh, I've already forgiven him for that. Now, you may not know this, but Christopher Hitchens was not asking for forgiveness. But Mother Teresa came up front and without asking or prompting, her response was, I would already forgiven him for that. And they said that they prayed for Christopher Hitchens. And as a good Protestant, I refuse to let a Catholic out forgive me. And so, if you want to know my response to anything of the last situation, it's just going to be all grace, all blessings, all love, all forgiveness. Um, I'm certainly not perfect. I pray on, at the same time, it's like, I don't know what good anything other than an open hand of reconciliation and grace and love is going to do any good. And at the same time, with my imperfections, you know, and sins, perceived wrongs or real wrongs or whatever, you know, I just hope for the same grace. We sing songs in this church all the time about being sinners, and we mean it. And I, chief among them. And so whether pride or anger or slander or whatever it is, divisions that that we are facing over the health of this church, none of us are going to satisfy our thirst by drinking seawater. And if we all start throwing mud, we're all going to get dirty. And the mission is going to be left undone. And so, I don't know what all my responses should or could be, but I know that one is grace and gospel will lead us towards a healthier church and healing. And uh, that's just what I've resolved to do in my response, if you want to know it. So... um, that is uncalled for. And um, all right, now if we can just um, get on, I want to pray and then get into God's word, which is actually the point of our gathering. Would you pray with us? Dear Heavenly Father, um, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. We praise you because we have given you 10,000 reasons um, to disown us, to abandon us. Um, We have chosen the creation over the creator time and again. Um, Father, we have employed the ways of the world and the weapons of the world. And we um, have went our own way like sheep. And so God, would you um, come because you're full of grace and love and rally us again, circle us again draw us to the cross again. Help us not just to talk gospel, but be a community that actually lives gospel. Um, Father, this is your book of Ecclesiastes that you authored through your Holy Spirit, that you gave with intentionality to your church and a purpose. Would you use it to carve us into the bride you want us to be? The people you want us to be? God, would you bring a revelation of our sin, of our brokenness, of our worldliness, so that we might come to the cross for grace to walk away from that and walk back into your arms. God, draw prodigal sons back to you here today. Um, God, I pray uh, for my brothers and sisters that they would have ears to hear, and I pray today uh, that you, pastor, uh, would just speak through me and be the teacher here so somebody... um, might be changed. And so God, uh, nothing substantial and eternal happens without your activity. So we come pleading for you to be almighty here. Be the focus. Usher men's eyes towards heaven and to yourself. And God, um, God, be everything here. That's our prayer and our hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, man, if you have a Bible... And I hope you do, if you would open it to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. I had intentionality, or I had intentions to go back to the minor prophets, what I've been walking through since I got here. Whenever we switch Old Testament, New Testament, hit a little road bump with that book of Mark. That took two years, all right? So you're like, we've never been in the Old Testament. You've just not been here long, okay? We do this, kind of. I try to go back and forth, and I had meaning to go back to the minor prophets Um, And while in Guatemala, uh, with our mission team, I just felt the Holy Spirit leading us to this book. 
And so uh, that's where we're going to find ourselves in Ecclesiastes. Um, it's about 12 chapters, probably take us about 16 weeks, but we're going to interrupt that a little bit uh, in this fall semester with a little mission stuff and some standalone stuff. Here's the thing that I, I always try to do whenever we start a new book. You should not go to church. You should belong to church. Like there's a church on this earth that you need to belong to as a family member. And as we can testify, family gets messy, but it's still God's intention and it is still good. Here's one thing that I'm going to acknowledge. There is a limitation to what I can do in your discipleship process through the preaching of the word on Sunday mornings alone. Now, I believe that what we do here to gather, to sing songs to one another, through the handling of the word, through taking of communion, through all the other elements, we're actually fulfilling scripture in this Sunday morning gathering, and it plays a role in your discipleship. Amen? Like, this is a part of God's intention for you. But, this is not all that there is in Christian community. And so, it is my ambition that every single one of you have a house church, have a community that you are in together, breaking bread, praying for one another, and walking verse by verse through this text, getting deeper than I will ever be able to get on these Sunday mornings. Is everybody tracking? All right? So just acknowledge, part of what I understand when I preach is that on the other side of this, there are house church leaders that are going to pick up where I lack, and we're going to try to complement each other in your discipleship, in getting as deep as possible in the Word. So if you're just not in a house church, you're not in that kind of discipleship stuff, it's, it, you're just going to dwarf your faith. And you're just not going to get all that there is to squeeze, as far as juice, out of this beautiful fruit that God has given us. So uh, find one. You could throw a rock in here and hit somebody that's in one that would love to have you, especially if you know how to cook. All right, Ecclesiastes, first off, let's start here if you bring up the slides. The word Ecclesiastes is a Greek word because we have a Greek copy of the Old Testament. So go to the next slide. Uh, the word comes from koaleth in Hebrew, okay? Um, and that basically means like collector or gatherer. And we get the word, if you've heard ecclesia before, that's a Greek word which basically means called out ones or ones that are called together into a church. The word in the New Testament for church is ecclesia. And ecclesia is the preacher or collector or shepherd who gathers the church together. So the name of the book is named after basically the word for preacher or collector or gather. And we see that in verse 1. The words of the preacher, koaleth, right? Ecclesia, that's the person that kind of gathers the church together. And he's a collector of sorts. And so inside of this word is this idea of an antique collector. Now some of you, this should make all the sense in the world of what is the activity that Solomon, who we're going to get more character study in the following weeks, is doing. He's an antique collector. right? And some of you will go through dusty barns to find some treasure. Right? You will go you will go into somebody's house at a garage sale looking for antiques to put in your house. Does anybody know who I'm talking about? And every antique and every treasure has a story. Right? And I would say this the same way. Here's another way to put that. Every scar that you have has a story as well, doesn't it? Here's what Solomon's going to do throughout this book. He's going to preach through his scars. He's going he's gonna to take his baggage that he's picked up along the way and he's going he's gonna to use it as a sermon illustration. He's a collector. And every little treasure that he has has a little story behind it. Um, I, I had never heard of this until about two years ago. Does anybody know what a hope chest is? Raise your hand if you know what this is. Okay, then I'm the idiot. Uh, I have no idea what that was. I, my in-laws showed up with a chest at our house from like 1994, all right, and just said, here, this is for your house. And I was like, no. And they, they, you opened it, and my 
all of my wife's memories of her childhood was in what was called a hope chest. Apparently, my parents had zero hope for me. Because I got nothing but a duffel bag and a do not return. All right? But they gave her this little chest with a little frilly on top. And you open it and it's like, my girl was an athlete in high school. All right? So she all of her accomplishments in basketball. Little did you know, my wife used to barrel race. All right? Yeah, surprise across the crowd. You, you don't know her until you open this chest and start digging through this stuff. And you're like, there is story after story with every little antique and article and thing that is inside there. Go to the next slide if you would. This is exactly who Solomon is and what Solomon is doing. Look at this verse from the New Testament. Matthew 13, 52. Jesus here speaking. He said to them, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I've never heard that passage taught on. Anybody else? Like, I've never heard that passage taught on. But what Jesus is saying is, is like when you're in the kingdom of heaven and you've been trained, you have this warehouse of surplus of wisdom that you're able to draw on, some of which is new and some of which is old, but you've got a hope chest. Isn't that awesome? So here's the problem with our hope chest from Solomon. It's going to be filled with a lot of junk. Amen? Have some of you read this book? It's going to get dark before it gets light. You're going to have 11 and a half chapters of homeboys sounding like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. You're getting like four verses at the end of it to redeem all that. All right? But it's going to get dark before it gets light. Here's basically a couple things about Solomon in general. I don't want to get a deep dive in, but I get, I'm going to introduce you just a little bit. And then the next two weeks, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a much fuller treatment of Solomon. Okay? But here's what happens to Solomon. Solomon wrote the Song of Songs. He wrote part of Proverbs. And he wrote Ecclesiastes. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job are a part of Hebrew wisdom literature. So it's going to be a little bit different than what we've been studying in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark... It's like driving a Prius, two years of long distance, nice and smooth, doesn't make a sound when you turn the engine on, okay? Ecclesiastes is a CJ7 from 1967, okay? Clunky, awkward, but we're going in some different terrain. Does that make sense? Gospel of Mark has been a lot of narrative. This is going to be a philosophy class, okay? So when he comes in, he writes Song of Songs, he's a young man. Single. He falls for the it girl of his day. The Marilyn Monroe. The Shulamite. Right? And as young men do, they starts come on his come up. He's in the building phase of his life and he collects the wisdom that it takes to be successful. Then you get to Ecclesiastes, and here's what Ecclesiastes is. Ecclesiastes is him as an old man looking in the rearview mirror at a lot of regret from where he left the path. I mean, and some of us that are older in here got a couple of those gray hairs. We know what it's like to set up at night and replay in our mind over and over again the worst decisions we've ever made. And a lot of us in here do not have the kind of honesty to even share those decisions with other people. What we get from Solomon is a brutal honesty of where he blew it. You're like, doesn't the Bible say he's like the wisest man? God gave him wisdom that outside of Jesus, this is the wisest dude? And I would say, absolutely. And just like everything God has given you, it can be squandered. And so the, the book of Ecclesiastes, is it's a book that details what it means to be a prodigal son. What it means to find yourself in different, different sides of the gutter. It's a story of an old man who, having repented, is going to come back and tell you young fools 
don't go this way. I've done that. I've been there, done that. I bought the t-shirt and I was left emptier and emptier. It's an old man shooting a shot across the bow of anybody who would try to find their meaning in anything under the sun without God. It is the man coming in and saying, if you have a godless life, you are destined for ultimate failure. Even if you succeed for a few years. Ecclesiastes is what he learned after he didn't do what he knew to do. It's not when he's young and it's not as he grew. So as a book, if we think about this as, as like some of the literature of the Old Testament, the Psalms maybe teach us to worship and, and maybe the Proverbs teach us how to behave and Job teaches us how to suffer and Song of Solomon teaches us how to love. Ecclesiastes is maybe going to teach us how to live by teaching us how not to live. Are you tracking with that? So the theme of this book, if you kind of gave it a big meta-narrative, the theme of this book is what is the purpose and the point of life? Kind of that philosophy class question. What is the purpose and meaning of life? Where do you come from? Where are you going why are you here? Now, the Bible affirms that we come from God, we're going to God, and we belong to God. And that our hearts are restless until we're in Him. Because nothing here satisfies us like the eternal. But listen, Solomon's going to take us into philosophy class and prove his argument by criticizing secularism. Okay, so you may not be familiar with philosophy. It comes from two words, philosophia, the love of wisdom. Solomon, in his time, um, wrote like a thousand proverbs and wrote like hundreds of songs. And so he's going to take you through whether music, which you understand is philosophy, right? Some of the best philosophy ever written was written by singers, He's going to take you to the deep end of the swimming pool uh, to drown you in some sort of baptism, right? Hoping that somebody else is raised from that. So philosophy in general, if you took a philosophy class like an intro to philosophy, they would say that our modern Western philosophy started um, about a thousand years before Jesus' arrival on the planet. Jesus is pre-existent, was with the Father in the beginning. Um, he's the eternal God, but he enters human history and a thousand years before that entry, or advent, Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates are considered the big three of Greek philosophy. Even before them was our boy Solomon. Solomon hit the scene, and God, basically through books like this, began the, the culture of Hebrew wisdom literature. And But it's different from most philosophy, which is... Just like proposition after proposition, logic and reason, it is, it's that, but it's mixed with a little bit of the flip side of the prodigal son and regrets. It's the world's wisest fool talking to you about how you live and how do you find your meaning? Is it from anything other than God? Well, how's that going to go for you? So, a couple things. It can be a bit brooding, right? Some of you were at the house church training, and we read this book, and it got, like, you got more depressed as we got chapter after chapter, amen? It can be a bit, like, emo-sounding, right? You're like, I don't listen to emo. Sorry. It sounds like country, right? Y'all realize country music and emo hate each other, but they sing the same thing. Right? She took my house. She took my truck. She took my dog. She keyed my truck with my dog. And then took both of them. It's like, it's not that the glass is half empty. The glass is half empty, broken, leaking, and it's spilling on the carpet. 
it can be a bit uh, depressing. And so here's the thing. Solomon had great light, but he fell into great darkness. And, and, and here's something really key for us. Solomon is not an atheist. The word atheist, basically, there's no God. That's not his position. He's not an agnostic saying agnosko from the Greek word. There is no knowledge of God or pathway to God. And he's not a deist that believes like there is a God, but he's an absentee landlord to quote Al Pacino. That's not his position. His position is that there is a God, but does God matter? That's going to be the philosophy in this book. Does God matter? Does he matter in your life? Or can we, can we live like functional atheists and get away with it? Will, can it go good for us living like there's no God? Here, here's how this is really key for our church. Because Solomon is going to attack and criticize secularism, materialism, and scientism, which is going to say there is nothing more to your existence than the material world. Why is this important to us and our mission in 2022 to La Plata County? Because it's important to us to love our neighbors. And you know what I know which, about your neighbors? Barna did a study group, uh, I think it was Barna or Pew Research, and it said that one-fifth of Americans over 30 classified their religious status as none. So one in five people over 30, there's a few of you in here, one-fifth one of people that you interact with that are 30 and above, if you ask them what their religion is, they would tell you none. They're, they're, they're arguing that their life is the bad verses from Ecclesiastes. So every time we're walking through this, we're talking about your neighbors. We're maybe talking about some of you in here. If you go under 30, 33%, a third of people 30 and below, describe their religion as none. Right? Can you roll and be completely secular without God and have meaning and purpose in your life? This is critical to the mission that God has given us to reach our neighbors who are living on a hamster wheel. Do you hear me? Here's the big question of this book. What is the meaning of life? Everybody you know. Look to the left, look to the right. The house on the left of your house, the house on the right of your house. Everybody in this county is answering that question with their blood. Because they're waking up on Monday and they're going to live their lives in regard to what they believe their meaning is. Right or wrong? This is the question, philosophically. And here's what he's going to start out by saying. The words of the preacher, the son of David... King in Jerusalem. I'll get to some of that next week. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, some of your translation may say meaningless. There may be some different things. We've got to deal with this word. But here's what Solomon is going to begin to attack in you and in your neighbors. That life without God is vanity. There is a meaninglessness that your neighbors wake up to every day. Now, is he saying that literally every, everything in all existence is meaningless? I'm going to argue no. Right? Because here's the thing. His argument, therefore, would be meaningless. Right? And I think he means something by using the words that he's using. I don't believe that what Solomon is saying is meaningless. So before we start to critique somebody, we've got to say, well, does he himself believe what he is saying? And I think in the context of the book, we're, we're going to see him say that even amongst this vanity, there's a way to enjoy it. There's a way to glorify God through it. And there's, but, but he's going to get into this world under the sun without God that he's going to describe here. 
I'll get to it in just a second. But first, let's look at this word. This word, go to the next slide if you got it up there. Um, hey, Asher, if you go to the next slide. Um, this word is havel. Okay, havel. H-E-V-E-L. Okay, it's really a fascinating word. And what creates the first conflict within this whole book is what do you do with havel? Okay, havel, figuratively... Um, I think I'm missing something on here. So literally, I think there's part of the slide missing. Literally, Havel means a mist, a shadow, um, a breath, smoke. So it's like the idea of like being in the mist in the morning and like trying to grab it. It looks like it has form and shape, but the moment you try to grab mist, good luck with that, right? That's Havel, like literally, that's what it means. It's like breath or a mist, a vapor. Figuratively, it means something transitory, fleeting, unsatisfying. That's how they use Havel figuratively. Fascinating is the root is in the same name as Abel. Right? We got Abel in here. Abel was a youth whose life was cut short from murder. So it's this idea of even in the first youth that his, like, his life didn't, it was cut short. So it's this thing that like, it just doesn't last. It's transitory. Vanity of vanities. Whenever you put things together like this, it, it's basically making vanity into a superlative. That is, it's often translated as vain. So it's like mist of mist, transitory of transitory, which makes it, and, and then therefore most scholars will come and say the word vain. Like Lord of Lords means the, the highest Lord of all Lords, or Song of Songs is the greatest song there was ever. So when you kind of put things in this combination in words, it makes it into a superlative of, that's another way of saying like the best of something. Now, isn't that kind of a hard word for us? Because here's the thing about the word vain. I don't know about you. When I read that, that word, I only think of, you're so vain. You probably think the song's about you. <laughs> you're so vain. I mean, where I land, and so I, it doesn't mean that. Well, Yes, kind of. Because here's the, here's the reality. If you make everything about you, what you end up doing under the sun without God, it's got to terminate somewhere. Even like making your life all about your kids is really making your life all about you. Making your life all about money makes your life all about you. Like ultimately, everything's going to come back to because you're the one calling the shots, ordering your life that way. Because you're not ordering it the way that the Creator told you to order it, with Him as the central focus of your life. Then come your family and your job and all these other things, secondary or peripheral to your focus on God. Does that make sense? So there's a sense in which this translation is good, but there's a sense in which if you're not actually using Havel, and you're not thinking about mist, then sometimes... You don't get the idea that he's just talking sometimes about things that just aren't going to be here forever. That are temporary. Like you're not always going to have a job. Spoiler alert, not all, you're not always going to be married. You're like, I'm getting a divorce. No, I'm saying you're going to die. And it's not, it doesn't go to follow you to the grave. Right? Like. You're not always going to have the money you have right now in your bank. And whatever you have now will be worth less 10 years from now. I bet you. He's just saying it's fleeting. Like, but it doesn't mean that it's inherently bad. It's bad when you make it ultimate. It's the Havel. And put it to you like this. Life can be not easy. Amen? Come on now. Listen, this is the problem. We come to church and we think that it's all about nice, cute platitudes that have nothing with reality. The Bible got none of that nonsense. The Bible comes in and diagnoses what reality really is. And let's say, before we can get to preaching the good news, we can be honest about the bad news. And, and the Bible goes straight at the heart of what's messed up in life. That when you make reality 
into whatever you want it to be, and you serve things other than God as ultimate, that's idolatry. And let's say what that is. That is frustrating, hard, pointless, meaningless, hopeless, plus taxes. Pause. Okay. You're like, Colby, I thought church was supposed to be happy. Right? Like, why are you trying to bum us out? I thought I was supposed to come here and get the feelies, right, and feel good. And you're coming in talking about pointlessness of life, right? Until you can get honest about your life without God, then you will never see your need for God. See, some of us in here know what life is like without God. We know that depression. We know that meaninglessness. We know how broken. Now, is there challenges in the Christian life? Come on now, yes and amen. But you ain't. But there is a, all things working together for our good in Christ. That is not the truth outside of Christ. There's a meaning and a purpose in Him that you won't find anywhere else. And I don't care how much money you make. Now, some of you just love this, right? On the other side. You're kind of on the negative, pessimistic side of the glass half empty, broken, and leaking. And you're going to wake up on Monday, and your spouse is going to be like, baby, could you do the dishes? And be like, all is vanity. <laughs> Didn't you hear the sermon? It's pointless. Right? If I get a call from your spouse this week, brother, church discipline. But here's the thing. Doesn't it seem like this start, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And even what you might have looked ahead in this book, doesn't it seem like he's in a dark place? Like, I mean, isn't Ecclesiastes going to be a little bit of a walk on the dark side? It's it's depressing. Like, don't you kind of want to be like, we need to keep sharp objects from this dude. Right? 18th century Russian novelist level depression over here. All is meaningless. Come on. Something's got meaning. Actually, he's going to be pointing out the darkness around you to help lead you to the light. Now, that light may be six verses at the end of the 12 chapters. But it's there. It's it's at the end of the tunnel. It's just a ways off. All right? But here's the deal. Let, Let me take this further. Isn't this the root, tell me if I'm wrong, of at least part of our mental illness and our depression in America. You could argue Solomon is the first real American. And I'll prove that in the following weeks. But isn't some of our mental illness and some of our depression, I'm not saying all of it, isn't it likely from right here? What is your meaning? Who are you? Right here. And isn't our depression, at least in part, our souls telling our minds and our bodies, something's not right here. Something's fractured. It's out of joint. It's, it's not right. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm doing everything my culture is telling me to do to feel good. I'm posting it online. And the more and more I run after a secular life, the more my soul dies. And you act like that's not going to be depression? You act like that's not going to be some sort of mental illness? We are living the experiment of Ecclesiastes right now. And we're, as a culture, saying it's not true. And we're suffering the blowback of that in every single mental illness and depression that falls on us. Because we don't know who we are. We don't know where we came from. We don't know where we're going. And we don't know the meaning of life. Because all of those are found at the fountainhead of God. And God alone. But we are rolling the dice on anything giving us purpose and meaning besides Him. And and I would tell you right now, the word depressed is a great descriptor of what life without God is. We can't rewrite that because in Him 
is all life. And it's not found apart from Him. In Him is all meaning. And meaning is not found apart from Him. In Him is all purpose. He's the one that created you. You can't find purpose outside of your Creator. You just can't. He's the source. And so... Um, Solomon's going to lead us back to the source. He's going to lead us back to the source. And here's um, an example of how he's doing this. Just so you get a tone for the book. Um, some of our kids are going over to Hope now. And uh, some of the other kids in the family are as well. And so uh, I picked up my kids and also was helping the Robertsons. So I, I grabbed Abigail Robertson and gave her a ride over to Bayfield because she had track practice. So, you know, I asked my kids kind of the same kind of question all the time. It's like, What's the best part of your day? What was the most challenging part of your day? Those are kind of like two questions. Just driving in a car, it's like, best part of your day, most challenging part of your day. And Abigail was there, so I was like, what's the most challenging part of your day? And she talked about that she was writing this argument paper, um, basically about, about this book that she read. And she just talked about how hard it was to kind of find her argument and, and to write this paper. And so I, I said... Argument papers are really easy if you begin with your opponent's best argument. And you take their best argument and you attack it right there. And so you're not defeating a straw man. A straw man is basically constructing what your opponent's argument is. And then you just like elbow drop it from the turnbuckle and you feel like you're really good because you defeated an argument they're not even making. Uh, That's called politics. Okay. Um, But we don't know Latin fallacy, so we don't ever go there. All right. So what I said is like find their, the best argument for the opposition. Think in their mind, figure out how they're thinking, and then like deconstruct that in order to better construct what your argument is in its place. Just basic uh, debate and argument um, tactics or whatever. And so this is exactly what Solomon is doing for you. Probably one of the best arguments that people around you make whenever you try to share God with them, try to share the gospel with them, try to invite them to church, it's like, does this... Yeah, I don't care about that. That doesn't matter. What is... Do I need that? Now, they may say it differently, or they might just ghost you and text message, whatever. But isn't that kind of at the core of what your neighbors are saying? It's like, I've got a boat. Why do I need God? Right? i got a ski pass. Right? I make six figures. Why do I need... Their argument is from that there's a possibility of a secular life without God. That they can get away with it. And still have any kind of life that matters and purpose. And here's the thing about the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is going right at the heart of that argument for 12 chapters. He's going to take their best argument of life without God. doesn't mean that they don't claim to know God or to have a God or any that sort of stuff. Most of the people reading this claim to have some relationship to God or a God or something like that. They held something ultimate in their, their life. It's that, that, did they know the true and living God? And does that God matter? Do you hear it? Do you get the sense of what Solomon's trying to do for you? He's debunking the strongest arguments from the secular life. So, let's read a couple more verses and then we'll get there. And I'll kind of leave you with this. Verse 3, What does a man gain or profit by his toil at which he toils under the sun. Now, what's interesting here is like gain, profit, a man. Here's what Solomon's going to do throughout this book. He's going to give a cost analysis of living the secular life. A cost analysis. So show me the spreadsheets of things that you use to calculate that your life has meaning and purpose. Show me those spreadsheets. And we're going to talk about whether that calculation is going to leave you in the black or if it's going to leave you in the red. At the end of the day, all right? So that's kind of the language of gain and profit and toil. Toil is the word that has to do with like your job, your career, your work, 
Now, we understand that God created work in the Garden of Eden before the fall as a good thing. We believe work is a good thing in its right place done to the glory of God. Right? Now, we also believe that if you try to put work before grace and you try to just work and work becomes its own means by which you earn your salvation, it becomes deadly. Right? But work and worship, one word for that in Hebrew in the Old Testament is the same word. But what happens at the fall, if you will remember with Adam and Eve, is that work becomes cursed. The ground fights back against you, so it becomes backbreaking. Thorns and thistles fight against you. So every time you go to your workplace, and does it always seem like there's some sort of kink and things going smooth? Anybody? When that happens, it's God reminding you that the beautiful thing of work and worship that He created for us to do is cursed because of sin. And that's why paperwork's going to get lost. You're going to strip the bolt off, right? Somebody's going to get in a fist fight at work. And just there's just always going to be problems at work because it became toil. It became something else than God intended work to be. So that's sort of what he's saying. He says, when he toils, and then note this next phrase in verse 3, under the sun. So this is where I'm getting the idea that Solomon, in part, is going to be writing about secularity. The idea is everything under the sun, not talking about heaven. Not talking about God, where God's rule and reign perfectly happens. Not talk about where his administration does things and it's blessed and it's good. It's talking about, you go out here, you're talking about Monday morning. Under the sun, just doing things. Paying bills. Under the sun. And he's going to look at this, at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes, and a generation comes, and the earth remains forever. This is a way of talking about that there doesn't seem to be the end of a cycle. It's kind of going in a pattern. Verse 5. The sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. By, by the way, long before we understood scientifically that the earth was... Around, and it went around the sun and there was a circuit. Bible knew that was coming. All right, The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind remains. He's got no Doppler and he can't see from space a hurricane and he can't see circuits and wind patterns but God created the earth and its wind patterns and Solomon has a wisdom about the earth and natural science that exceeded even this time. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where streams flow, there they flow again. By the way, a knowledge of the water cycle. Why do all these streams keep flowing, but the sea is never full? And blah, blah, blah. It's a water cycle. Um, second grade. Um, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eyes are not satisfied with seeing nor their ears filled with hearing. So there's this idea of that you're never satisfied. You have an eyeball, but it doesn't get filled with sight. You have ears, but they never get full of hearing. What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Pause. You as an American don't believe that. Because we are waiting for the new iPhone. Right? And it's going to revolutionize. I heard it has a camera. Right? You're like, wait a minute, how can this be true? Sure, at one time we didn't have the internet. And now we got the internet. So how can there be nothing new under the sun? Right? Well, what is the internet? It is something that passes data from one place to the other. Here's another way to put it. It's an upgrade to the carrier pigeon. A massive one. But really, at the root of the internet and at the root of the carrier pigeon was what? Communication. And communication is not new. See, if you really take to all of our modern technology and you root it back, you're, you're rooting it back to stuff that man for all time has dealt with. But we don't believe that. We think that the newest thing is like revolutionary, Right? Does anybody remember their first cell phone? 
Was it a back phone that you like cranked up and spoke to satellites like you're Elon Musk or something? Yeah, I know the back phone. Was it a brick with snake on there? Do you remember? And when that thing came out, you were like the most technologically cutting edge person. Whip that Nokia 5165 out now, and it is a self-defense weapon. You could kill somebody with that thing. Things that appear new get old really quick, don't they? Or, you might have heard it this way, the more that things change, the more they stay the same. And this is what Solomon is arguing here. Is there anything new? See, it's new. It's already been in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things. This is Solomon saying, you are terrible at history. Like, terrible. There, nor will there be any remembrance of the later things yet to be among those who come after. Now, I'm going to make this argument about no remembrance multiple times, but let me make it at least one way. Um, take your favorite sport right now. Whatever your favorite sport is in your mind. All right? And... I want you to go back, uh, let's say 17, say it's football. Go back 17 Super Bowls. Who won it? Say it's the Olympics. Three Olympics ago, and do not say Michael Phelps. He's just been winning for years. <laughs> Besides Michael Phelps, name me some Olympians who won, you know, six events. Come on now. They're so important. Oh, you struggling? Wasn't that... The most important, name for me the first five vice presidents of the United States. Oh, big, big whiff on that? Second most powerful position in the United States. We can't even remember their names. So here's the thing. It's a, it, uh, he's going to argue that history and remembering is really hard. But let me just tell you, there's no new thing under the sun. It just... It has a superficial appearance of something new. But at the root, the same problems they face is the same problems we face. And this is a part of the reason why the Bible for them and the Bible for us is timeless. Because it doesn't deal with the Nokia 5165. It deals with the root of what's wrong with man in the world. It's a different diagnosis. See... Inside of this, between whether it's the physical cycles or even cycles of people, not remembering, he's going to say, you're going to see these patterns of behavior throughout history. You're going to see the creation, but it's never going to lead you to the creator. And that's the problem. You can look at these patterns and you can note these patterns, but the patterns never lead you to the God who created them. Do you know where else the Bible says this? Romans chapter 1. That, that the things created speak to the invisible attributes of the God that created them. But because we worship the creation instead of the creator, we stop when we start gazing at the beauty of the mountains and the Platas, And we never go from there to the majesty and grandeur of God who ordered them and created them and brought about their being. This is Romans chapter 1. And he's starting his book the same exact way. Life without God. Now here's the thing, the question then is, if this is the pattern of behavior and things don't change, as far as the secular man is concerned, when he looks at the world, um, there was a famous artist, uh, Macklemore, that wrote a song about homosexuality some 10 years ago, and the song argued this idea, I can't change. That was it. And the argument for homosexuality is I was born this way, I am this way, and I can never, ever, ever change. And he's arguing from a secular perspective that this has always been the pattern of my life or how life runs, and therefore there is no change. And Solomon is saying, if that is the way that your life is, it's vanity. It's meaningless. And I get it, because without God, there is no change. It's not wrong. But here's the argument that Solomon is going to make, and I think the Bible is going to make throughout the whole Bible, is that with God, all things are possible. That with God, change, real change, not just on the surface, switching one iPhone to the next, change at the core of who you are can happen with God in ways that it can't happen through any other agency. Here's a, a last story, and then we'll be done. Um, there was this really interesting um, story and research that I heard about. Um, Harvard, some 80 years ago, 
started um, taking men that graduated from Harvard. They interviewed them at their graduation day about their ambitions, their work, who they were. They interviewed them about their life, their meaning, their purpose. Then, every year after their graduation, they called them and they interviewed them again. And they kept interviewing them every year until they died. And there was one such man that when they interviewed him at first, as many type A people that get into Harvard are, they are so consumed with achievement. They have to be in order to get the grades to even get in there. They're incredibly rigid and they have expectations about making money and business and what is important in life. And so this young man was exactly that way. When they interviewed him, he was, he was driven, he was hard, he was in, and he just he was a, a hammer looking for a nail. So he goes out into life, and as they interviewed him over time, this rigidity, this crustiness, this hardness, this pursuit of the world actually drove away his family, and in particular he had daughters, and it talked about the strain that his pursuit of career put on his family and his daughters in particular. But somewhere in the midst of that rat race, he was changed by God. And it shifted him to where he began to think that his career didn't matter as much. And so he began, he switched careers and oddly went to Sudan and started serving in the Sudan and kind of opened his world up about that life is about more things than me. And he, he began farming and putting his hands in the ground. And, and he changed his priorities at home. And as he got older, he laughed more. And his daughter said that even in his 80s, he could hug his kids in ways that he never hugged them as kids. And he became different. He could verbalize that he loved his family, which is something that they lacked so much when they were young. When he, when he was in his 80s, Harvard sent him his original interview from his 20s. And when he received the interview, he listened to it, and he sent it back saying, you sent me the wrong interview. He says, That's, that wasn't me. And he, they wrote him back. He's like, that is you. See, here's the thing. God had changed him so much at the core of it, not just career, not just at the core of his, he could no longer recognize who he once was. He could no longer recognize who he once was. The beauty of what Christ has done in the gospel is that he comes to die on the cross for the man that we once were. For our sin and our shame and our own junk in a treasure chest of regret and pain. And he takes the punishment, he takes the shame and the dead on the cross. He buries it that we might have a new life of treasure with him. We might have our meaning and our purpose and that we might actually experience change. Change that those living under the sun without God will never know. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Leave us not here on earth to our worship of creation. But God, would you rescue us from the idolatry that's in every one of our lives. Lift our eyes to heaven that our souls might find their lives, their meaning and purpose in you alone. God, come and save us from the secular life. Save us from the secular life. God, if there's one in here who has never surrendered their life to you, God, would you, by your Holy Spirit, convict them to turn from their sin and trust the gospel and be saved. If they've been living for nothing but vanity, 
God, would you show yourself in such a way that all their trinkets are worth giving up in order to have you, the treasure. God, if there's a brother and sister here that's just in the grind and they've they found themselves back into the rat race, would you get them off the wheel? And God, would you renew their sense of purpose and meaning and help them to not just live for what's under the sun, but live what's beyond it, what's eternal. Holy Spirit, come and work amongst us for your glory and our good. Pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand and respond in singing?